I could leave with a few tips of just kind of like finding that balance between like living a life well lived and just going for the big bucks and going for the money. Like I'm entering into the season. I do it every year of where the end of the year, I'm always, I'm a goal oriented guy. I'm always making goals. I'm always making plans. And if left unchecked, I will go too hard. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. So you guys recently went to Kilimanjaro, and we will, we'll, we'll cut to the chase in just a second, but you guys climbed... Kilimanjaro together. It was a group of how many entrepreneurs? It's twelve of us. Twelve. Tw- twelve. How many RSVP and how many showed, Clint? In the end, that's a great question. Like, well, what was the pull through? We had about probably 30, 35 on the early interest list, and that when when it came nut cutting time, pulling out the wallet and putting down the deposit, a bunch, a bunch, some which will not be named, faded away. <sighs> Well, so was it about the, and I'll tell you, there's absolutely no way both Kevin and I could have climbed that mountain at the same time. Zero chance. We would have come back to starting, we would have been, we'd be running an HVAC business right now. Let's just put it like this. (laughs) No, we wouldn't. Uh, We'd be navigating bankruptcy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We'd be distributing funds from our trust account. It wasn't (laughs) that expensive of a trip. I think it was just for most people, it was just getting the time to get away. That was certainly the hardest part for me. Well, and that's the entrepreneurial life. That's the point I was going to make. This is a group of entrepreneurs and, you know, how many of them, how many of those 35 can realistically cut from their business for two weeks? Yeah. Yeah. That's the line. It was during a school year, you know, so it was like everybody's in October, early October, most people's lives are going full speed. Yeah. And so being able to walk away for two weeks and in October is tough. All right. Yeah. So before before should, you got on, Eric, topic, you didn't you, you didn't get the background before you got on. But Clint made a we were talking about Kilimanjaro. Clint made a joke that his wife is still reminding him about that trip, and my my wife Tara is still the same way. You know, it's a lot. It was a, as much on us as it was on our families to have gone away for two weeks. So it, it was quite an undertaking. I don't I don't begrudge yeah. anyone that couldn't that wanted to but couldn't make it. You guys have some goodwill to restore. You'll be good by twenty twenty five. I'm sure. No problem. That's right. All right, so Clint, let's dive in, man. So you run Bison Business Brokerage, which is now a national business brokerage shop. You have a prominent social media following. You're, you know, you've written pretty prolifically on business buying, selling, the like. I think a lot of people listening to this are going to know your background, so I don't think we need to belabor your background. But for those of you that don't know Clint, he's a terrific business broker located in South Texas. You started with Texas Business Buyers was the the original brand, great brand, but quickly, I think primarily driven by social media. We could talk about that. I think you outgrew just the Texas confines, which is a pretty impressive statement to make, and are now running a national brokerage called Bison Business Brokerage. And I bet, my guess is that 
you will be a powerhouse in the next 10 years. I, you'll be number one. That's my, that's my personal bet. I think you're going to kill it. I think the Appreciate social that. presence too, in particular is a superpower that other people don't have that you have. So kudos to you for what you've built, but we don't need to get into that too much. For those of you that don't know Clint, go check out some of his other podcasts, his website. Is there anything before we dive in, Clint, what do you want to plug, man? What are you working on? Like, let's start with telling people how to find you and, and the things you want to plug. Yeah, I mean, my my main business is Bison Business. We just call it Bison Business. It's bisonbusiness.com. And then if you want to get, most people that want to reach out are looking for businesses to buy. They're looking for deals. And our early notice deal newsletter is called Probably a Good Deal. It's kind of a fun name, but if you go to probablyagooddeal.com, you can just sign up right there or there's links to that from the Bison Business website. So that's always a great way to get a hold of us. So you've got, you've got a business brokerage, you've got, tell us concretely, you've got also probably a good deal, which is a newsletter where you distribute opportunities. What else are you working on? Yeah. So, you know, two years ago I I wasn't on Twitter and Twitter kind of changed my life because it exposed my message, I guess, to a much broader audience. And, and so we went from Texas business buyers to buy some business on a rebrand about a year ago. And We, we, for the past seven, eight years, we were mainly sell side representation of Texas based brick and mortar businesses. And now we've expanded our offerings to now we do nationwide and we also do buy side advisory as well as sell side advisory because a lot of our audience and people that were reaching out to us for assistance were buyers, you know, because I think that's X or Twitter was covered up in buyers and a lot of folks wanted our takes on deals or wanted their, wanted our help on deals, but we weren't really set up for that. So we, we brought some buy side services to market this last year, including a, a deal advisory service called buyer Sherpa. And so that's just like, it sounds, if you're going to climb a mountain that you've never climbed before, like Kevin and I just did, uh, you want people that have done it a hundred times by yeah. your side, helping make sure you don't die on the mountain, you know? And so we, we do buy side advisory. And then we also have a, a nascent search program called search for you, which is uh, basically doing proprietary off market search because we found that was kind of like a, an underserved part of the market. There's these guys coming out of MBA school in the traditional search world that have, you know, the traditional search funds where they have a salary and, and money to pursue deals full time. But you have this whole self-funded search group which is a lot of our, our friends and besties that do deals with us and SMB Law Group, that a lot of these people are holding down full-time jobs or they already own small businesses and they don't have time to do full-time proprietary outreach. And so we're, we're fractionalizing that and letting people just do engagements where we, we build a list and work a list of off-market uh, pursuits because that's the most common frustration I get as a broker with a big audience is, you know, we're a small shop. We do quality deals, but anytime you talk to me, I've got maybe 10 that we're working on. And when you're reaching, you know, we get millions of impressions a month on social media that translates to thousands of inquiries. Yeah. I've got 10 and seven are under contract. You know, I've got maybe three available. And so when people reach out and they're like, Hey, do you have something in, in Michigan that's yeah. in manufacturing and metalworking? You know, I'm like, I don't know, dude. I've got three on the market. Yeah, you don't have you don't have four thousand businesses. Yeah, you don't, yeah you don't so I can't HVAC meet everybody's needs. Yeah, so that was a big frustration, and I think that's a big frustration for for buyers. And so the search program that we're that we're doing called Search for You is a way to solve that. So 
well, like, okay, well, let's just find all of the, the ones in Michigan that meet your criteria, form that list and work that list for you. And you can just pay us to do that as a service. And then a small success fee, if you get one closed, just a pretty straightforward offering. And we're still kind of limiting. There's a waiting list for that right now. We're limiting the amount of people we do that while we work on figuring out how to scale that. But that's been a, yeah. a successful launch this year as well. Are, well, so are that you raises a, go ahead, Kev. Well, I was just going to say it, it raises a good question that I think has come up a, a few times. It'll be helpful, I think, to to talk about openly here. And and that is like, why in this industry is it so hard to find a collection of high quality businesses on market in the way you can in a lot of other industries? The The one I think that this is most akin to that people like to compare it to is real estate, which we will be the first to tell you there are a lot of differences in buying a business than buying real estate. But when you think about a Zillow or a realtor.com or something, why is it that it's so hard to go out and, and find these quality businesses, you know, that they can't pick up the phone to Clint and Clint has access to a database of 8,000 businesses around the country that they can pull like, you know, here, here are, 15 businesses in this random town in Michigan that you called me about, you know, as opposed to like full on search service to go and uncover those. Well, and let, let me piggyback off that before you answer it, Clint, are you reaching sellers on social media as well? Is your social presence helping drive that? Like Kevin said, that list of high quality businesses. It is. Yeah. We get, I'd say about half of our inbound sellers are coming from social media or direct referrals through social media and about half are coming through seo and other like digital means but we don't do any as a firm we haven't done any cold outreach our entire time we've always stayed busy which is our reputation and before i got on twitter i was already pretty active on linkedin and facebook and just look i'm just the local texas well-liked business broker until a year ago, you know, or a yeah. year or two ago when people started to know me more broadly. And I think that social media has been huge for us because basically what it allows you to do is build rapport at scale. And I think you guys have done that with, with the legal profession, but people want to do business with people they like, know, and trust. And it's, you can form those one-on-one -on -one or you can put yourself out there. And that's what I think trips out other business brokers that I've taught about my social media approach is like they're traditionally a very private group and they're very yeah. concerned about confidentiality and they play, they, they're used to playing everything close to the best. Let, let me I'm introduce you to lawyers. Kind of wear, Clint. Yeah. So I wear my heart on my sleeve. I joke, I make memes, I tangle, I get, you know, t entangles with you and Reg and like, you know, all the other characters on SMB Twitter and mix it up with you guys. And I think you can do that and, and have fun and lead with your heart and your values and still not violate client confidentiality. And then what that does is in a, in a world where most people, I think legal is the same way, aren't talking publicly about what they do. That means most people don't know a good lawyer. They don't know a good business broker that specializes in this space. And just by being yourself, showing up with a full heart, and sharing your values and who you are and your family and your vacations and pizza or whatever, people feel like, I know that person. I like that person, even if they've never met you. And it scales 
you know, to thousands and thousands of people. And then people eventually over time get comfortable making that referral. And so before Twitter, I was already living my life somewhat publicly across Facebook and LinkedIn. And, and that every, you know, everybody either owns a business or they know people that own, own businesses. And when it's time for them to sell, they don't know how to do it. They don't know who to use. And so they're asking their friends, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about selling my business. What do I do? And here I am just the guy that's out living in public, sharing stories and sharing what I do. And I just yeah. become the natural referral. And that's, that's proven to scale even nationally now that, that things have, have grown. So it's a huge, uh, you know, secret weapon for us. Yeah. Well, we kind of flipped the order. I wanted to talk about this last, but I think the beauty too of that, and then we can, we can move past it and talk about business buying, but the beauty of it is I, I think that the clients that are not a good fit, they know that before they even get on the phone, right? We're not, you know, as, as lawyers and as brokers and service professionals, you're not going to be the right fit for everybody. And I love the idea that there are people out there that see my my presence as I'm sharing similarly to you. Sim- Maybe I've offended you by saying that I share similarly to you. I don't know, but <laughs> sharing. And I, I love the idea that there are people that see my presence and go, that, that guy's not for me before that we even had that console saving ourselves a lot of time. So it kind of cuts both ways. Yeah. 100%. But the vegetarians out there that can't handle pepperoni on pizza, is that what you're referring to Eric? Or you yeah, just are people who are dieting generally, you know, the taco guys, <laughs> like don't be, you know, don't even be doing a console. But Clint, I think if, if, if I were to leave the law tomorrow, what would I go do? And I think for me, the answer would be, I would either go work for a bank and be a BDO or I would, want to go do what you do. And the reason I would want to do that is that you see businesses, the inside of businesses, large scale. And through that experience, my guess would be, you know, what is a good business and how to build a good business better than anybody. And I think that experience is incredibly cool. And, you know, the things that you could do with that are, are infinite. So I'm excited to hear from you. You know, you've written in the past about what are the components of a great business? What are you looking for? Can we? I, I can't find the tweet. At one point, you had written like a really good, just like you know, synopsis of what are the components of a great business. Should we? Should we? Can we walk through that and talk about what what you believe makes a great business? Yeah, happy to do that. Yeah, it's a what you just hit on is is something that really attracted me to this, and I this whole world has been. I've just learned it as I went. I didn't come from a schooling background in this kind of stuff. I went to school for aviation and aerospace degree and then went, you know, through the transformation of being a salesman, marketer to, you know, like a commission sales type person to launching a business with angel investors to, so I became kind of a startup guy for a bit because I thought that's how you do, how you get into business. When I was in my twenties, that's all I knew was if you wanted to go into business, you had to do a startup. And then once I exited a business and sold it, all of a sudden I had a little money and I didn't want to do a startup because it was so much drama. And then I had this light bulb of like, maybe I should just buy a franchise or, or something like that. That's an established model. And then I started searching for that. And then I found, oh my gosh, people are selling already established businesses. And so I just stumbled onto like biz buy sell and it just clicked. And I was like, okay, I think I want to do that. And so, yeah, you found my thread. Thank you. I put for, for those of you who are watching on the internet or are in the car, we've got the 
the tweet up and it was something you actually wrote. Well, I guess October 7th, but you wrote this a long time ago. This is a repost, right? Cause I remember it from, I love when people run yeah. high quality stuff. Again, I have no, no harm, no, no, no issue with that. The tweet is titled how to identify a great deal when buying a business. You may want as many of these attributes as possible. Yes. So, so yeah, I just stumbled into this space and then over time, I, I kind of had the same epiphany as you, Eric. I was like, man, if, I, if I'm advising people on doing deals, buying and selling companies, I have this privileged position of being behind the confidentiality veil where yeah. I get to see all their numbers, full access pass to the data, but then I have access to the human. And, and businesses are just collections of people. And the more you know the great people that build these businesses and are able to sit down and have coffee and lunch with them and say... Hey, what was your secret sauce? You know, like how were you able to be so successful in this space? If you have that, if you have that conversation a thousand times, you get x-ray vision into like what makes a business great. And, and I think it's, it's just fascinating. And for me, I feel like I probably would be a little more successful as a business broker if I focused on like just one city or one industry, but I, I cast a wide net. And I just try to do good deals with good people. That's kind of our motto. And, and I'm a generalist. So we've, I've worked probably across 40 different industries so far as, an, as a sell-side advisor. And I just love that being able to scratch that kind of like shiny object syndrome as an advisor to learn about all these different industries from all these different owners. And then I get all these insights into, you know, sometimes you learn something from a manufacturing person that's perfect to apply to a CPA or mm -hmm. something like that. And that those, those people would have never talked. And I'm as a generalist able to like be a good advisor because of all the experience, you know, speaking across all these industries. So this list that I made that you just pulled up was just kind of an amalgamation of if I was out, if I could start all over again and I was just going to go buy a business what would be the attributes I would look for? Yeah. Not talking about any specific industry, but what are kind of the universal attributes of what makes a good deal? And so that's what we pulled up. So Aaron, let's, let's, yeah, let, yeah, I was going to say, let's, take let's us count through, through these. Let's, yeah, let's, let's talk about them. Yeah. So I, mean, I got to, uh, I got to move my screen here. Can you see it? So number, number I'll read yeah. them off, Kevin. So number, see. number one is, go, go ahead, Kev. I was going to say, number, so number one is clean books. And it's funny the way you write this. You don't say clean books. You say, Clean books, clean books, clean books. Easy to understand P&L and tax returns, no funny business. I, I presume there's a reason this is number one and there's a reason you said clean books three times. So break, break that one down for us. I think accounting is kind of the cornerstone of what makes a business great because people can say why business exists all they want, but at the end of the day, they have to make a profit. They have to make yeah. money. And for, for you to be able to finance a deal and know what's going on in a business you have to keep good records and good accounting practices and and so if i'm looking for a business to buy i'm typically you know there's some good deals to be had when you come into an absolute mess a train wreck with really bad books if you're like the the forensic type person that can figure out what's really going on there make yep. sense of it and get into a distrust deal or a muddy waters of finance sometimes you can get a real good deal done but that's kind of its own specialty. If you have a good right. clean set of books, it's way easier to raise. Like, I think the harder part is getting a, lo a lender on board. Yeah. 
So most people getting into this space, they're trying to get, create some leverage to their purchase and they get huge returns on their cash by creating leverage through financial engineering. And the cornerstone of that and what everyone likes, investors and banks, is clean books. Yeah. And so a good set of books are kind of that cornerstone where you're able to build a really nice financial structure. And then everybody from your bank and investors and that's going to want a piece of this are going to be on board and it makes your fundraise really easy. So that's so, a big one. So let me ask you this, because I, I, I think it'll be informative from a, a different perspective, particularly a different advisor role in this ecosystem. So we recently had Elliot Holland on the podcast and you maybe you haven't listened to the episode, but maybe you've seen some of the quotes on social. He, he, he dropped a like kind of breathtaking stat and it was a little off the cuff. I think, you, you know, it's give or take, I don't know how accurate, but he said that his best guess is that probably 40% of all deals that he reviews from a quality of earnings perspective doesn't just have bad numbers, but has like outright fraud in the financials, like in the books, like people making up numbers, like intentionally kind of doctoring numbers. I'm curious from your seat, particularly in the advisor ecosystem, what your reaction to that is. If you, if you feel like that's the same, if you see a lot of sellers that you start digging in and you're like, guys, what is going on here? If, or would you push back on that, at least from your perspective in terms of how engineering, uh, you know, you use the term financial engineering. So maybe there's yeah. just a difference on the definition of what fraud means, but curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. So Elliot and I spar sometimes on Twitter and we have fun. <laughs> yes, with you each do. Other. I love this question, Kevin. Please. Uh, I, that is a great question. I think that we are coming from a few different lenses. Sure. And so you got to remember the people that hire him are buyers that are are hiring with a skeptical eye for him to kind of like break apart this business. And I, when it's, I don't see that level of fraud on, because like, I feel like we turn away probably 80 to 90% of folks that come to us to sell their business because we have the ability for to, like that x-ray vision I was talking about earlier yeah. to kind of, sniff test a deal and we're trying to see is this first off a size because we'll get to that in our next point but like there's a size range we like to work in we turn a lot of people away because they're just too small you can't prove enough earnings yeah to for me to reliably say i can get this deal done and so there there are brokers out there that will take you know the there's some good deals out there that have millions of dollars of revenue but negative earnings yeah and I t I rarely take those on. I actually have one right now that's negative earnings. So I've, I have one exclusion to that, but like normally I don't because I like to see a clear path to the goal line. And so we, we filter by size, we filter by quality of bookkeeping and then by the owner's involvement and all these kind of qualitative factors that we're going to talk through here. And a lot of these are just from my experience as a broker. What, what makes a business sellable? We've yep. really figured that out at this point. And so I think that 80, 90% that we turn away for various reasons, the wrong size, bad bookkeeping and accounting practices, or too wrapped around the owner, those are some of the biggest problems or customer concentration, things like that. I think a lot of those owners go away and then they find another broker that will take them on and they'll 
or, or they'll for sale by owner it, but they'll know kind of the problems already because I've told them those problems. Yeah. So I'm not surprised to hear that some of those folks for sale by owners or from less reputable brokers do end they still up get to market on the market, do end up under contract, do end up on Elliot's desk and do end up getting uncovered for BS, you know, because for me, it's like we die if we don't close deals. Right. Like we're a success fee organization. Yep. And so the worst possible scenario for us is to take something to market that somebody like Elliot's going to find fraud in 11 months of work deep and we've got nothing to show for all that effort of packaging yeah. and marketing and negotiating and doing all this. Cause we do all our work front loaded. We don't get paid until the very end. And so it's like a nightmare for us to take something like that to market. So I feel like it's the incidences of that are extremely low with a quality brokerage shop because they've kind of filtered that out. And over their years of experience, they can find good deals with good yeah. people and, and bring those to market. And that's, that's the value reputable brokers bring to the table. No, that's, that's super helpful context. Eric, what's point number two? So number two is adjusted earnings, SDE or EBITDA between 250 and 900 is the sweet spot for maximizing ROI on both your money and time. Smaller can be better relative percentage gains, but too time consuming. Bigger can be less time consuming, but you have to pay a higher multiple. Talk to us about this, Clint. I've, I've always, and I will tell you, this is, this is not what we hear from buyers. Most buyers say 750 to 1.5. So contrasted to that as well. Yeah. I, this is an opinion. This is an opinion based on where I'm at in life. And I meet people that have very much higher net worth than me that they won't even look at, look at something that's under, you know, 2 million EBITDA, et cetera. And, and so you have to take everything I say with a grain of salt because I'm, I'm kind of like upper middle class guy, I would say, but not like, I don't have a huge pile of capital to work with. And so I'm looking to, there's like a spectrum. If you're, if you're just starting out baby entrepreneur and you want to get maximum ROI on the very limited amount of dollars, you get a small deal at a very low multiple and your sweat and effort gives you this huge return on cash because it's mostly you, right? Like you created all that value. When you buy a you're, business, you're, you're buying bu- some already buying the proverbial job versus a business in, in the way it's described online <laughs> or by some. Yeah. So, I mean, to make it ex- an extreme example, you know, you could go buy a business for $10 and you build it into a million dollar business. What's your cash on cash return when you sell? It? I mean, it's astronomical, right? But if you're, if you buy a hundred million dollar business and you just grow it, you know, 10%, all of a sudden you made 10 times more than the guy that bought it for $10 and you only grew it 10%, you know? And so there's like this spectrum. And, and so I think you got to find a balance. Most of the buyers we work with are like normal people that are trying to put usually six figures of down payment into a deal. That's like the average buyer that we work with is they're, most of our deals are like seven figure deals with six figure down payments. And I think that that creates the sweet spot of saying, Hey, this is not a financial instrument that you're buying. The ones that are, that are financial instruments, you're looking at single digit returns on, on your money. The ones that are startups, it's infinite returns on your money that because you're creating all the value, but yeah. there's somewhere, there's some sweet spot in between 
where I or think you can get losses, like, one of the two, but yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so I think there's a sweet spot for people that are willing to create value, get into the trenches, be an owner operator where they're actually going in there and, and improving the business, driving sales, and they're also deploying capital at the same time. And I think that there's a sweet spot. I said 250 to 900 because I think that's the range where you can buy it like most of the deals in there average at a two to three X multiple. They're also very under, they're not super dialed in with the management team, with the accounting, with all these things. There's room to improve the marketing and the processes where you can get organic growth, which supercharges your returns. So you're able to like get into that zone. And then that also gets you an opportunity to cross that million dollar threshold, which is you said, you said it earlier, like most of my buyers, I talked to a lot of buyers that are looking for that million and up. Yeah. I do too. But when you get above a million, the multiples jump substantially in my experience. So instead of that, you can't get that two to three X multiple deal at once you're at a, north of a million EBITDA. It's extremely rare. Yeah. Once you're north of a million EBITDA, like, four, you know, is, is more common and up depending on industry. And so I think that creates, I think the biggest like leveraged play is leveraging your money with an SBA loan, which can typically only take you close to that million EBITDA, because once you get too much above that, you get out of their lending capacity. And so you can get maximum financial leverage, but you can also get maximum operational leverage to get a, an, an imperfect company more modernized and revolutionized and add value with your sweat. And that supercharges you and gets you over that hump to now you could be a target for private equity someday or a target for institutional capital that will pay a much higher multiple. And so I think that if I'm a buyer, I like buying just underneath the big boys and then turning a company into something that could be a target for the big boys. And I think that's where you get multiple expansion and you get the leverage from the SBA loan and the leverage from your skills and time. And that's this perfect storm of like triple benefit of your, of your return. And that's why I bookmarked it in that range. Does that make yeah. sense? It does. So the, the idea is start, start modest with a low multiple and then quickly accelerate yourself into multiple expansion by growing through sweat equity in an asymmetrical bet. For, for yep. most people, most typical main streeters will say guys like you and I that didn't grow up, you know, with, with privilege. I, I think that's a special, I think that's especially true in today's environment versus like, you know, maybe a year, two years ago, right. Where, you know, when you have, obviously it all depends on your, you know, cash flow, et cetera. But when you've got, when you're pushing multiples up four five X in a, you know, 11 to 12% SBA loan interest rate environment is harder to get deals done. Yeah. And I, I may push a little bit lower on that deal size than a lot of people on SMB Twitter, because I think a lot of the thought leaders in our space are coming from private equity or the, the MBA business school backgrounds or traditional yeah. search, which generally look for that 2 million and up EBITDA and, and a lot of the biggest thought leaders came from the zero interest rate environment yeah. where it was more about financial engineering than it was about the sweat side of the equation. And I think that there's like a healthy balance to go downstream a little bit and to put a little bit more emphasis on the hard work of this thing and the entrepreneurial skill of this thing and not just the financial well, leverage. 
park. And a quick and a quick side note before we go on to point three on on that thread, Clint. I, I'd be curious to know what you're seeing from buyers because I think you're right. We see a lot of thought leaders who have who come from certain backgrounds, elite MBAs, you know, former private equity, things like that. What are you seeing as buyers? Is is that your typical buyer or are you seeing a lot more kind of tradespeople who are, you know, 15 years in deciding I'd rather own my HVAC company or HVAC company instead of work for it? What what do you see on the sell side from the buyer profile? Yeah, Is I that think an the buyer question? The buyer thing that will surprise maybe some listeners in our circles is that, you know, the, the stereotypical 30-year-old MBA that's a searcher, self-funded or traditional searcher, they're overrepresented on Twitter, but very underrepresented at the closing table with Main Street deals, with premium Main Street deals where we play. There's a whole lot of people that are in their 40s and 50s that are corporate refugees. You know, they're, they have a multiple six-figure paying a corporate job. They're not on Twitter. They are professionals in some form or another. They've led other other people's businesses as managers or division managers or leaders. And we sell a lot of them businesses. So it's, it's very, and we have, I feel like there's this legend out there where it's like every seller is this baby boomer that's <laughs> using their fax machine and ready to retire. And then the buyer is going to be this 20 or 30 year old, what behind the years, you know, out of B school buyer, kill the fax and make over the website. Clint, that's all you need. That's not totally over-exaggerated though. There is a lot of that going on, but what do you, what you said underrepresented at the closing table, are you saying that there's not strong pull through for searchers or you said, what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean that, it's not our stereotypical buyer that actually gets the deal done. So we get a lot of those guys looking and we like them and we talk to them. But when it comes time to put your name on the dotted line, these guys that are the 40, 50 year olds that have a few hundred grand liquid in their brokerage account that the younger guys don't and that are more relatable for the sellers, like they have a big advantage and they will come out of the woodwork and you don't know they're, they're not in our, they're not at our conferences and they're not on Twitter with us, but they're just like solid operators and solid buyers. And what I wanted to break the stereotype of is like, we have many deals where the sellers like in their forties and the buyers is in their fifties. Yeah. It's like this weird, interesting. It's a weird dynamic, but I can probably explain that a little bit is like, I just did a deal on an, an off-road shop with Justin, who was with us on Kilimanjaro. Yeah. yeah. And he told his story. And, and it's very typical. Like he was he's young. He's in his forties, like maybe mid forties, early forties. He was a seller. Yeah, maybe, yeah. But but he, he had done this shop. He had built up an off-road shop over twenty plus years. So he had done it since he was, you know, just a pup, probably twenty years old. As a, as a technician and then built a shop and built a bigger shop and then built it, you know, built this really nice business. But then at some point he realizes, and a lot of times these sellers, it's not only the retirees, it's people that are saying, man, if I'm ever going to do anything else with my life, cause I've been doing this business for 10, 20 yeah. years and I've got it yep. to about as far as my skills can take me here, then it's time for me to sell because if not, like a lot of these people are self-aware enough to know that I'm I'm pretty much limiting the growth of this company at this time. And I'm still got 
gas in the tank. I want to go do something else with my life. And a lot of times it coincides with empty nester syndrome when people are, hmm. um, you know, in their late forties or their, their kids just went off and their, their business got their kids through school and they're just looking at their life and they're like, man, is this going to just be a repeat groundhog day, you know, existence running this small business or, or am I ready to t- take a few million dollars home and go reinvent myself? It's a perfect time well, for that. Well, this is bad news for Eric because I'm about to send my first kid off to college. So sometime here in the next two to three years, I think I'm Kevin's day. I think I'm out. I, I've known this about you, Kevin. You're you're absolutely day to day. But I've known that since since day one. So every time I get a text from you saying, "Hey, you got five minutes," I'm like, "You're this is the day." <laughs> yes, but what about Kevin? No, but to your point, Clint, I actually have had several transactions within the last month and I can think of specifically where the seller has been early 40s mm-hmm. and in, in mm-hmm. each of those cases either they're trying to they've got a significant other who's late 30s they're trying to start a family and they're like they're they're gritty grind you know entrepreneurs that have been doing it for two decades have built hardy enterprises and are going to, doing a five to ten million dollar exit or they have a family you know, that's, that's getting a little bit older and they're like, okay, we want to go change, change gears. My guess for those people, those are the, those are the, the non-compete red flags and not red flags, but those are the ones where that we need to make sure that the non-compete says five years because an entrepreneur like that, my bet is they take two years off, they rest up and then they go, what am I doing with myself? And then they're back in it. And if their best skill set, particularly in like a technical area, you know, that the, their best skill set is to go back into that technical area for a buyer, you got to look out for the, I'm going to, you know, a three-year nod compete where it's two years of rest and one year of preparation because Clint, like you're an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur, Kevin's an entrepreneur. Like, could you sell, could you sell bison tomorrow for 10 million bucks and just hang out? and do nothing like and i know no. your answer would probably be i'll go do different things but like there's no chance man that you're just gonna hang out so for the rest of your be life. retired that's a Can't great question it. so for me like i could go do different things but i have a track record of switching industries so i've i've had you know a few different careers when you're talking to that 40 50 year old seller that's definitely not gonna sit on the beach and retire you know they're going to go kill it at something. You want to make sure they're not going to slit your throat in three years after non-compete. The most important question to ask is to say, what's life going to be like for you on the other side of this deal? And make sure that they have a clear vision that I don't know, or I'm just going to think about it for a while, especially ones that have been 20 years in one industry. They're going to think about it for a while. They're going to watch you flounder (laughs) <laughs> and not run the company as well as they think they could have. And it's, then their favorite customers and employees are going to call them bitching about the way you run the company. And then they, they might get a bright idea in three years. You know what? I could do this better in a whole new way and go, eat, you know, go do this all again and then sell it for five or $10 million again in a few years. And they probably can't. And so yeah. if I've got that younger seller, I want to make sure that, so like, I sold a trailer manufacturer from a young guy who's in his 40s and the the buyer got really comfortable with it because he had launched several RV parks and he had la- he had money down for the land on another and the the capital from this transaction was going to help him build out like a, a third really big one 
and he could see like this guy's time is already getting pulled this other direction and he's making more money over here on these RV parks than he does at this trailer manufacturer. And, and so like he, you could see that he already had that next thing going. Yeah. And, and you could, it's much easier to get comfortable with that than the guy that's like, I don't know. I just want a little time off and then, then I'll see, you know, I'll, I don't know. Like that's, that's to me is more the red flag than just the age in itself. Yeah. Well, let's, let's keep powering through here. Otherwise this podcast is going to run three hours. So <laughs> point, point three, let's Clint, do it. Not, I'll, I'll clear my schedule. Not too wrapped around the current owner. You, you, you know, you link to a different thread on figuring out how to figure out if an SMB is over-reliant on the selling owner, but break that down for a second. What do you mean here? Not too wrapped around the, the current owner. Yeah, so often we come across businesses that their financials do look great. So they've they've checked all the check boxes. They've got yep. clean books. They're making good money. But when you get down to it, you're like, man, this business is not going to survive without this owner. Yeah. And so you know, we I I did a whole thread within the thread. My threads right. are like inception. You got to go layers very deep meta. Here. But that that one was talking about, you know, how do you tell that that one's too wrapped around the owner? Yeah. And for me, it's like when you call the business, does someone else besides the owner answer? When they're sell, when they, the most common thing you hear in sims and from brokers and from sellers that they think is a good thing, but I think is a bad thing, is they say we don't spend any money on marketing. You ever heard yeah. that? They oh, brag about time. it, you know. Yeah, every time. and you can see it on their PL. They spend no money on marketing, but they're doing five million in revenue. Yeah. And they're all proud of it. And you're like, well, how do you make sales? And they they almost act like it's this magic or that it's like there's just the strength of their brand is so it, good. And if you buy right. it, you're gonna you're gonna buy this magic that yeah. creates this five million dollars of revenue with zero marketing. And more often than not, it's not magic, it's relationships built over yep. decades that belong to the selling owner that go away when they sell. Yep. And so like that, that's a huge risk. And so I like to see on a PL when we're talking about a good deal, I like to see marketing. I like to see expenses for marketing. I like to see that they've invested in a way to generate leads that is scalable, yeah. predictable, as a lever you can pull as the buyer and isn't just the, the black magic voodoo of, I don't know. It's just amazing. We, we're just, it's all word of mouth. They that's what they say. It's all word of mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's really hard for me to get comfortable with as a buyer. So that's the biggest red flag. And then beyond that, you know, there's a lot of these companies have real technical things. And so if I have like a, someone that comes to me, that's a, you know, the, the number one, grandfather clock repairman that's making even if he's making a million dollars if that seller is repairing the grandfather clocks i'm like i'm out you know like, yeah there's there's a lot of times they just have that how do you replace that yeah yeah how do you replace the technical side or how do you replace so there's there's two main things it's the technical prowess do you have the technical bench on the company yep. that's going to go with the sale and do you have the the rev gen do you have marketing and inbound opportunities that aren't directly tied to the to the 
owner. So that's kind of the two biggest things you need to look for. But I, in that thread, I go into all these other ways you can kind of tease that out by asking them if they've ever been on a long vacation lately and to give you some examples. That's a, yeah, that's a big one. Uh, you know, just ways you can kind of get through that, that the BS all word of mouth all, and say, Hey, well get, get more specific here and you can tease that out. So in the interest of time, I will put the thread in the show notes and there's a lot of, there's a lot here. There's a lot of really yeah. good yeah. tips Anything, Clint, that that is in is in the and I'll I'll read them off really quickly, just really fast. Going back to, to the beginning, in business for at least three years, at least five employees, strong revenue per head, geographically located somewhere with a growing population, good reviews, reputation, trending upwards. Use similar, I guess, transferable skills and background and experience, strong margins, rich owner. That's always a fun one. I always look at big <laughs> houses and I go, who lives there? And then I, I daydream about career paths. But so it's, that's a good one. Most revenue is recurring or reoccurring. No family members at key positions, small market share, industry tailwinds, competitive moat. I'll stop here. But Clint, anything else? And what's the, what of these ones, just briefly here, what's the, next most or, or what's the single most important quality you're looking at a business and if it's not there you're you're not buying it you have to pick what i'm gonna go off script here eric and i would say okay. the most important quality is in the mirror so mm -hmm. like look at yourself in the mirror and i think the most important quality when you look at any deal is to get out of your freaking spreadsheet and get out of the finances and stop looking at these as financial instruments. I think that's this, this space goes bonkers with people because the returns are eye popping and okay. you posted stuff a week or two hey, ago, Eric, and people me, were trolling excuse me, you. Clint, the returns can be eye popping. Yes. Okay. I want to qualify that the way. The, the, the yeah, go ahead. And you I'm not even talking this. like, can be like one in a million eye popping. I'm talking about the middle of the fairway, normal structured quality deal that you put 10 or 20% down on and just don't screw it up. Like not even talking crazy talk here. Those returns are still eye popping. Yeah. Because when you think about right. it, buying at a two or three X multiple or two to four X, you know, mathematically, if you were to translate, translate that multiple into a cap rate, or a return a percentage return, you're talking 25 to 55, 25 to 50% without any leverage. And then when you apply leverage with debt, your, your return turns into hundred percent cash on cash ballpark first year with no growth. That's just like getting in there yeah. and not screwing it up. Servicing the debt. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so those and, and those numbers let's, aren't. Let's pause though. Let, let's just acknowledge we are not financial advisors, and you know <laughs> we we are also not investment bankers. Seek you know financial counsel before making any strategic investments, particularly those that pertain risk. Entrepreneurial invest you know lawyers, CPAs, talk to smart people before you make these decisions. But please continue, Clint. Eric guarantees these types of results. <laughs> Die. <laughs> That hey, is no, but I'm, I'm just saying every time you shared, you shared a post that was like, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago that was like, Hey, life changes when you discover you can invest this yeah. much and get this much back. And no one freaking believed you. And it gave yeah. you all this pushback from people that aren't exposed to this space. But I'm like, yeah, that's, that's kind of normal for like a, a deal that doesn't go bad. That's pretty normal. 
Well, well, let, let's address that for just a second. And I, you know, I won't say exactly what the tweet was poorly written, but it was intended to address investors in the deals, not sponsors. Obviously, sponsors should never expect passive income, but there are many people who give sponsors capital to buy businesses and then fade off into the sunset and receive, you know, the upside, the downside in an extremely passive way. That is normal. Yeah. That's what I was addressing. And what I suggested in that, and I, again, poorly written, and you know, there was a lot of clarification. I think a lot of people learned about small business investment terms. The, the tweet was seen by upwards of a million people at you know, three, three quarters of a million direct impressions, but then there was so much back and forth. And, and as an aside, the very interesting part about that tweet is that I sent the exact same tweet with the exact same words back in March, and it was extremely well-received. And it was so well received that we actually, myself and others in the space, went on in the subsequent days to write technical pieces about small business investment terms, really getting into the weeds of it. And again, universally positively accepted. Flash forward to November of 2023, I write the same tweet, and it is was very negatively received by two particular communities, real estate investors and venture capital investors. And to me, it was a really important indicator, and also SMB sponsors. And it was a really important indicator of a couple of things in terms of market sentiment, what's going on in the world right now, and being a little bit more delicate about how we talk about returns because there are a lot of asset classes that are really struggling and it's, it's, been, it's been negative. But you're right. A lot of SMB investors, two responses from SMB investors was, stop talking about this. One, why are you telling anybody about this? There was a lot of that, like in the DMs being like, what do you like? Stop. We don't talk about Fight Club, Eric. Yeah, yeah. But two, you know, supporting the idea that the base case for an SMB investment, we'll talk about why this is, but the base case for an SMB investment, if you're going to take your capital and put it into a small business deal, give it to a sponsor to buy a business. They need a 10% equity injection, sometimes less, sometimes more to consummate a deal. And they come to you and say, hey, Clint, I need $300,000 in capital to close on this HVAC business. Will you give it to me? What most SMB investors, and these things can vary and terms vary. And you know, there's, there's market terms, I think, to an extent, but broad strokes, you know, it's, it's still largely the Wild West. But what most sophisticated, experienced investors are going to say is, I need it to at Pensa at least a 30, 25 to 35% base case return return on investment in order to have this investment make sense. And the reason that they say that is investing in small businesses is risky and it's illiquid, meaning if you, the business has issues or if you have issues, it's very challenging to get your money out of there. Your kid gets sick. You need hundreds of thousands of dollars for medical expenses. You can't call up the HVAC business and say, give me my cash back, right? Like you can with a stock market investment or other more liquid investments. So there's a lot of considerations. And again, consult a financial advisor on this. But that was an interesting moment in time, Clinton. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of people learned SMB investment terms during that period of time. And it is a, it's a fascinating, it's a really yeah. fascinating proposition. And to me, what excites me about this space Again, my personal opinion alone is that the the people because business buying is not a new phenomenon, right? Like businesses have been bought and sold for a very long time. 
the new phenomenon to me that excites me, and again, I could be wrong in this. This is my own personal investment thesis. But this new generation of buyers that want to go to Harvard, Wharton, Stanford, it could go to Goldman, McKinsey. And again, there are a lot of people who say those people are not qualified in the right ways to run these businesses. I don't agree. I think over the course of 30 years, somebody who's always been successful in their life has risen to the highest levels of education, has worked at the most exclusive places to work that now want to go buy an HVAC business in rural Georgia. Like that's a guy or gal I want to give my money to and watch what happens over the next 30 years. That's my take. Could be wrong. Well, you know, returns will vary, but it's a, it, that's my rant on that. It's a very interesting space. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, I'm lost. What are, what are we talking about now? We're, I don't <laughs> even know. I don't even know. I think we should just wrap on that cut end scene. <laughs> end scene. No, I Let's think tr- so. Oh, I, go ahead, yeah. I think there, are t- I think there are two things we need to get to. Number one, both Clinton and I posted on Twitter what people want to hear about. I think we could do some rapid fire questions, but the, let's let's save that for the end here for a second. I, I do want, and I think it's still a, a good thread as we as we start to pivot slightly from talking about how to identify a good business to buy and things like that. Clint, let's let's talk a little bit about the philosophy of entrepreneurship and sort of your approach to why you own your own business, why you like helping other people sell and buy businesses and become entrepreneurs. You haven't always been an entrepreneur and and I, I think have felt led to this community for a, a, a lot of reasons. Let's talk about that for a second. So break down your your personal philosophy of entrepreneurship and why why you're kind of long on this ETA model. Yeah, I... I'm very long on this space. I'm very bullish on ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition, mainly because I get it. Like I was that guy that like I didn't fit into most traditional boxes. And so that for me looked like went to school to become an airline pilot and then discovered it was this long multi-decade corporate career where you're climbing a ladder the whole time and you're gone from your family half the time. And it just like the appeal, I realized like, man, I like airplanes and I like flying and stuff. But the thought of that being a cog in that wheel and that big old machine and climbing a ladder for the rest of my life, when I discovered there's a way to kind of create your own destiny and to like build the life that you want. Yeah it's really hard to do that inside corporate big corporate structures and my business bison business is just a reflection of me and my values as a human and i believe that eta is a way for folks to build that life of their dreams that are mid career you know that are like you can do it from the start but it's probably one of the only ways you can safely, semi-safely do it when you're mid-career yeah, and, and reinvent yourself in a way that's going to more align with, with your heart and your values. And like, again, look at the person in the mirror, look at the guy or gal in the mirror and be like, what really is important to you? What really matters? And well, Brett, so, so, so break that down because I, I imagine even, even as an entrepreneur, you probably struggle with the similar things I do. And there's a lot of talk in Twitter and things about that, like become an entrepreneur, then you control your own destiny and you can kind of like build the life you want. But like also at the end of the day, 
I put in a lot of hours. I still make a lot of compromises on my time and things like that. How, like concretely for a second, what, what are those values and what do you do to protect those as an entrepreneur? Because it's very, very easy, at least from where I sit, even as an entrepreneur and owning a, a business to kind of have your life end up looking very corporate again, where like, I don't have, you know, you have to make compromises on family time because you've got to like clock, you know, clock in and things like that. How do you avoid that? Like, what are those values and how do you protect those as an entrepreneur in the business you're building? The difference is, is you have a gas pedal and a brake pedal. So I think the entrepreneurs can totally miss the mark and miss. So for me, like a big core thing, we talked about this in our intimate time on the tent that's, that's in the, right. on the side of the mountain, <laughs> but like kind I of, wish I could have been a fly on the wall of that tent. I, I'm just <laughs> very sad, but please continue. But like a, a deep, a deep, deep hole in my heart, a deep, deep wound was like my father screwed up when, when I was a kid, you know, like yeah. he, he was, became an addict and it was alcoholic and we got to see him arrested a couple times and he bailed on our family. And then I had this like forced visitation for a season of my life. And then I ran away and never wanted to see him again. We've, we since reconciled. It's a really beautiful story. He's a great grandfather to my kids yep. now, but he wasn't there for me when I needed him as a child. And, and so like entrepreneurs are classically like they can do the same thing, right? Like you can be so obsessed with your 100%. small business that you never go to your kids' games and you you miss out and you blow it with your kids, you blow it with your wife. Like you're totally capable of that, but you can blow it with a big law firm, right? Like you can blow it with all these other things. But the difference is, is you can you have a gas pedal, you can go as big as you want, as ambitious as you want, but you can also tap the brakes when you need to and take care of the things that are even more important to you than money. And for you, Kevin, I'm like, I don't ever want to hear you know, that you're screwing it up with your family because right. I'm like, dude, you could just do a few less deals, man. Like Eric won't let me, <laughs> you guys are crushing it. Clint, it, your signal's breaking up there. We're going <laughs> to wrap on that. No, <laughs> we're losing. you. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you, you have control of that. And so just cause some guys put their foot on the gas so hard, they drive off the cliff. Doesn't mean it's fundamentally flawed. It just right. means they didn't know how to drive. They didn't know how to drive with their brake pedal and their gas pedal and to build the life that they wanted. And so or to delegate, to delegate it, to be more specific. I mean, 100%. Yeah. 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 That's the most common problem. We don't know how yeah. to delegate. I struggle with that for sure. So, yeah, I mean, like, I don't feel like I've made it financially. And I was actually hesitant to come on a, a podcast with the name of Mundane Millionaires because I'm like... <laughs> I don't know well, if I'm that guy. I don't know if like, I'm the guy well, you want to talk to, but like, let's talk about that though, Clint. I mean, for, so what is a mundane millionaire, right? Like, we've defined this in a, in a sense, but it, it's it's the person who is seeking the 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 richest in their life, not just financially, right? But it's it, I, if I were to put one word on the mundane million, it's the control, right? It's having the control back in your life. And when we look at our yeah. audience and the people that we interact with in our client base, what is the common denominator in every single one of them? It is that they are exhausted by being told what to do by other people. They're tired of not having the upside and they're willing to accept the downside if it means they get that control of their life back, right? 
and what is like the modern American dream of the, and, and, and I'm sure that this applies to an equal extent uh, across both genders, but you know, 25 to 45 year old men in this country right now, the ones that I know are exhausted. They, they are, they, they want the control back in their life and the American dream for them right now, our cohort is to build a great life where they make a great living, but have that control so they can also have a great family. The have it all scenario for them is not being a C-suite executive or having, you know, work travel, you know, it's, it's not having a personal jet. It's being able to make a good living, but also get to their kid's soccer game and, and coach at four o'clock on a Thursday and not have to ask for permission to do it or not have to commute home 45 minutes at 7 p.m. at night and and yeah. be home just in time to say goodnight to the kids. Like yeah. that's the that's the mundane millionaire. That's yeah. who we all are. And I, I think talk about your experience, Clint. Like you've been an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur for a long time. Like does 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 that you know how many years have you been doing it? And when do you get to that point where you feel like you've got the control? Yeah. So I honestly think there's an over index on the financial part of this game on uh, social media. And honestly, there's a lot of people that would be better served staying in their corporate career path and just climbing that ladder. If, if your goal is to have the most dollars in your bank account and the most security and the highest, you know, like if your goal is mainly financial, a lot of, a lot of people like at one point in my career, my, in my mid twenties, I was a uh, commercial aviation insurance agent. And I was the number one broker in a large agency that was national in scope. And I was making good money and I was on a path to probably like make, you know, you keep your book of business compounding mm -hmm. and then you kind of get untouchable with this huge client client base. And then you could potentially become a partner or, or take over the business or something like that. And I was, you know, number one out of 50 agents doing this niche PNC insurance thing. And like, I almost look back and if I just stayed with that, I might have a higher net worth today than what I've done. But I also think I wouldn't be able to live with myself for the regret I would have of not pursuing the higher things on my heart besides just the safest path to the most dollars and to exercise creativity, to be able to build a life of my dreams with my family, which is bigger than dollars, you know? So like, I just got back from like a five state road trip with my four kids and my wife. And I, I posted about this on Twitter last week. It went kind of got a lot of attention, but like she, my 13 year old planned the whole trip. I mm -hmm. gave her a budget and she like planned it all out. And I didn't know when we were going on it. I just had blackout dates when I had conferences and things I couldn't do it on. And But I'm like, you've got a whole year. You've got a budget. We'll go anywhere you want. It's your world. We're just living in it. And that wouldn't be possible if I had this traditional path. And so we homeschool our children. Their dad is there for them in a way that mine wasn't. I don't have this massive net worth or anything, like probably many of your guests will be a lot richer than me when it comes to just dollars and cents. But I've got like, 
a nice pool in the backyard. I've got a beautiful family. I've got a little plane 20 minutes away in a hangar and the ability to fly it from my formal education training and, and, and just a ton of freedom in my life. And my business is super flexible. Most of the time I'm on the phone or, or doing emails. You can do that from anywhere on the planet. Yep. Most of the time, just like you guys, I have a team that's, we have an office, but we have some distributed teammates. So I built a very nice little company that's very flexible. We get each other's backs. We back each other up. That's one of our core values. And, and to me, the business serves the life I wanted to build, to build around my family and my faith and these things that are of deeper importance to me than dollars. And the dollars are good sometimes. And I think I have a path to a good net worth over time, but I also have a, a for sure thing of a life of no regrets where I've been able to say like, I didn't wuss out and take the easy way, like, and just do what everybody else does. And, and I think one of my biggest fears that brought me to entrepreneurship was like, I didn't want to be normal. Like that, that was like a weird thing about me, but like, I just felt like normal was bad or like, I didn't want to get to the end of my life and stand before God one day and then be like, Oh, so you just did what everybody else did, huh? Cool. That's what you did with it. Well, with congratulations, the Clint. You you are indeed the least normal person I know. So <laughs> that's true. Which, you I, have I, checked I that I box, my friend. No, I love that. I, I I love the sentiment, and and I think what what we the, at least the approach we bring to this that we bring to this podcast that we bring to our guests is that that is wealth by any any yes. objective measure that we assign value to, yep. because I, I think you're exactly right. There's, you know, it's caught up in the spreadsheet and what the, what the number is at the bottom and you lose track of, you know, how much time, how much family, how much freedom and things like that play into this idea of building wealth and a wealth mindset. It's going to resonate I, with, with a lot of people. Yeah, you lot guys, of people. you guys and me, we're in professions that aren't, super well liked you know like brokers <laughs> you, and lawyers aren't, they're most they're not the most popular people usually and and like but i want to encourage you guys that like what we do is so important because yeah. of the people and the life stories and and when you think about a business deal the best way the thing that's kept me at this for eight years and i'd never done anything for more than three years before this and that keeps going to keep me doing this forever is that it's like the sacred moment when two life stories inter intersect is when a buyer and a seller meet and a deal goes down. And really the only reason someone is buying a business is the same reason someone's selling a business is because they want to change their life. They're trying to turn a whole new chapter of their life and we get to be there and help them kind of like turn a whole new chapter or birth themselves into a new life for the rest of their life. And it's a sacred thing. And it's something that I don't think we should hold lightly because we're in this privileged position to be there right there when these lives collide and these life stories change. And I think that's a huge part of the fun part of what we do. Well, in, I think what you're describing, because I couldn't agree with you more, and I think sacred is a great word to, to describe it because these are massively important transactions. For the seller, you're talking about selling their life's work you're talking about their nest egg for retirement. You're talking about a moment that is going to, you know, provide them financial trajectory for the rest of their life in most cases. And obviously some of them are younger, like we talked about earlier, 
for the buyer, we're talking about a massively pivotal moment where it's going to affect the trajectory of their life moving forward, their financial life, but also their quality of life. Most of them have kids looking at them, spouse looking at them, counting on them to get it right is massively important. And what is going to keep guys like you and me who are notoriously, I, you know, if you look at my career path, a lot of change, right. And a lot of job change because I'm an entrepreneur and that's what I, I think pure play entrepreneurs are constantly looking for. What's the next angle? What's the next thing? But what's going to keep guys like me and you in a particular discipline and it's passion, not for the, the task, but for the, the person. Like I feel yeah. insane passion. Like I'll, I'll talk to these guys at three o'clock in the morning, you know, when they can't sleep because they're worried about, should I do this deal? Should I not do this deal? With no problem, I'm not. I'm not thinking about money. I'm not thinking. About, it's a conversation I would have for free, and so I think that that resonates deeply with me as well. So sacred, I like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it, I love it, that. It does feel like a calling, and that's why I think I enjoy. It, is is I had been an entrepreneur that had launched and sold a couple companies, yeah, before I became a broker, and I I realized like my favorite thing in life was talking to other people that were going through those huge changes, like thinking about leaving my job, starting a company, thinking about buying a company, thinking about selling a company and like being able to be someone that can come alongside them and put their arm around it and be like, I've been there. I get it. Let's talk this through. Let's look at this holistically. Um, let's make a plan. Like I, I enjoy those conversations. I did those for free when I wasn't getting paid to do it. And when I discovered like you can get paid to do it, I'm like, that makes even more sense than doing it for free. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's a sweet spot. Uh, I could do it for free, but yeah. It's cliche. And I, 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 Kevin, I think that that is the common thread within people within our firm. And by the way, this podcast is not associated with our firm, but the people within our firm, it's business buying and these situations, the, the, the transactions generally, the buyers, we're, we're insanely passionate about it. We're, I, I guess I shouldn't say this for ethics purposes, but you know, whatever we have experience. I can't say we're good at it, but we have experience doing it and we can make money doing it. And it's the classic Venn diagram that everybody yeah, should yeah. be looking for in their career. If you can find something you're good at, that you're passionate about, that you can make money doing, it's it's magic in your life. Yeah. It's particularly if you can have that entrepreneurial control to, to design it in a way that works for you. It's yeah. the coolest thing in the world, but it's also entrepreneurship and it's hard work at Buck's house with you and there's no one coming to save yeah. you. And it's all those things too. So it's, it's fascinating. So if, if I could leave with, I don't know, like a few tips of just kind of like finding that balance. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, please uh, do. Between like living a life well lived and just going for the big bucks and going for the money. Like I'm entering into the season. I do it every year of where, the end of the year i'm always i'm a goal-oriented guy i'm always making goals i'm always making plans and if left unchecked i will go too hard like i'll mm -hmm. i'll hurt my family by going to because i'm in this unlimited world like there's always more deals and more dollars i can chase 24 7 365 and when you're an entrepreneur you're often in that unlimited ocean of opportunity and you can go drown in it, you know, or you, you can go lose yourself in it and lose yourself what's most important. So I always try to go from a first principles from like, I'm a God family business person in terms of priorities. And, and so like I schedule out my year 
like I'm going to Greece next year. I'm marrying my brother off. I'm going to be the minister at his wedding. Like that's set in stone. You know, like we're setting those dates on the calendar right now. Yeah. And then I'm thinking about what are the bucket list things I want to do like Kilimanjaro last this year, you know, was one. And I try to like build a great life that involves, I'm going to be at my kids stuff. I'm going to go on trips. I'm going to, you know, whatever my passions are, like if I'm going to pursue an, a, a new rating on my flight, flight world, you know, that's my big hobby is flying airplanes. And like, I want to budget accordingly for that out of my time. Our time is our most valuable thing that we have some say over here. Yeah. And, and so I budget all that stuff first. And then once I've got time for my health and my family and my faith and these things that I absolutely can't screw up because you can always make more money, right? You can go bankrupt and screw up and you can come back you can make more money. But if you blow it in one of these other areas, you might not come back. If you lose your health, your family, right. your faith, those it, sorts it, of things. So I, I know a lot of people listening to this clip will go, that sounds nice, but I don't have the, uh, the ability financially or otherwise right now to prioritize those things. I got to make money and I got to get it done. Are it's the things you're describing, belief. are those accretive or are they limiting like you just suggested? I, I think that's a lie. I think that's a limiting belief because there's 24 hours in a day. And if you audit, look at your screen time on your phone, look at your whatever, like you have time to work out for 30 minutes a day. You can be, you don't have an excuse. Like anyone can be healthy. Anyone can have a good marriage, but they don't like, they don't happen automatically like they take work and you anytime I've not budgeted the time because I felt like I'm too busy it's I can't in this season like I end up blowing it in one of those areas and re highly regretting it but I can look back and be like I didn't really have to because I still had enough time to watch movies and be on Twitter and whatever else I was doing and so I I think it's a limiting belief I think that anyone can succeed with six to 10 hours of work in a day, you know, like in this world. And if you're feel like you've got to work more than that, get better at delegating. Like Eric was saying, you know, like get, there's something wrong with your business mm -hmm. model or with your skill set or with your strategy or something, but you, it doesn't take 24 hours a day of work to be successful. It takes doing the right things in a focused manner and you can schedule out vacations and life and fitness and health and family and then crush it in the gaps that's the, the phrase i like to use when i'm talking to people about it. just crush it in those gaps in those gaps let yourself go hog wild grow your business as big as you can make as much money as you can take the lid off your imagination of what you can do and just freaking go for it but when it's time to do that thing you committed to in the beginning of the year on your calendar where i'm going to go to greece and and check out you no excuse like that that's set in stone that's happening no matter what that is happening. all right so everybody let's pause that was i love that but let's all pause here let's all pull our phones out and let's look at our screen time and see who's who's the biggest uh degenerate <laughs> here of the three of us i'm kidding i'm definitely not doing yeah. that because it's absolutely I'm, me. I'm, unquestionably i'm 100 doing it right now <laughs> i'm not even doing it i can't even i can't even stomach <laughs> that right now but so okay all right so the moment everybody's been waiting for obviously you tweeted before this clint about topics folks want to talk about so we need to talk about the cyber truck couple minutes here objectively the ugliest vehicle ever invented full stop what's next are you 
Clint, are you pro Cybertruck or are you anti Cybertruck? Why well, I, I, I didn't see your your opinion. I'm a strong pro. I'm in the pro camp. I think it's and you think it's, you ordered. I'm on the I'm on the list. How do you reconcile the the aesthetics of the <laughs> Cybertruck with like reality? You know. <laughs> <laughs> like what is it? so people have got to be suspending this like when you watch a movie and you think you, you get to that point where you're in flow and you think it's real like what are the elements that elon is doing in his branding to make people believe that that truck is not a monstrosity in just a few months everybody and they're willing to, to actually it. invest in it i mean i was yeah but i was repulsed when when it was it first shown like it was probably like three years ago or so it was it was a while back when they showed the design it's been years yeah and I had the same knee-jerk reaction, like, what the heck is that? That's not a pickup truck. That's a joke, you know. And but I have evolved and become enlightened to its beauty on a functional basis. And I've it grew on me. I I I, I like it and I'm a kind of form over function guy. And I think it was built on first principles of, of design and i think they were bold i would i'd happily drive one but i also think that in a few months once everybody sees them on the road everybody will get over it really quick and it's not going to have the shock factor anymore and it's just going to be more of like <laughs> this thing this thing's going to do well. <laughs> this thing's going to if you're sitting at a red light okay and in like a toyota camry uh <laughs> And you get rear-ended by one of these. It's going to demolish you. It's going to cut cars in half. It's, That's great. Eric, but Eric, it's bulletproof. I mean, it come it's like a giant knife. Looking. Dude, this thing is a monster. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot accept this as... <laughs> I can't accept this, Clint. I, what, is, what is... You said first principles of design. That feels it looks like this? that so they can I mean, fold what, it together with a to... giant press why why did we have to make it look like this though could we have not made it so like the teslas are the teslas are like i think the tesla is a pretty nice looking car right like it's got a sleek modern design it's unique yeah so you got something for everyone now why did we have to go from that to this? You couldn't have made a truck. There were like mock-ups of the, so there were mock-ups of the Tesla truck, Cybertruck, that were like amazing when people were guessing at what it was going to look like. See if we can find some of those. I mean, obviously they're going to be drowned out now by like. Modern. I think it was, you know, the compound curves, a, like that red one, like that's just going to be massively like, more expensive. So yeah, I think, think that's was, just going to be way more money to make. Production purposes. Yeah. So this is, okay. This is probably yeah. true, yeah. I'm sure cost I, had I, a... it. It kind of makes sense to me. You know, say what, say what you will about Elon. It, well, it, 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 say what you will about Elon, but the fact that he is able to, as a business person, without any marketing, we talked about marketing earlier, he spends no money on marketing. Zero. Tesla does not advertise, to my knowledge. And the, the idea that he can, can he, 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 yeah, for sure, I bet. I don't know any uh, advertising. The fact that he can mass produce these and, and focus on production first and then still have you, you guys go, 
yeah but it's like it's actually pretty cool looking despite like all objective measures and reality it's pretty cool because <laughs> of these first principles like his extraordinary business that's, that's I mean, it looks cool the fact that i mean it looks to- like it's out of halo it looks like it's out of a video game that's cool it does look like it's out of halo i'll give it that it looks like it's not finished like it looks like there's like more work to be done like it's like <laughs> like they haven't completed it it looks oh well I don't want to and hate I'm, on the Cybertruck too much. Maybe Eric and I, a year from now, we'll both be Cybertruck drivers and just, you know. Dude, I'll get one. I mean, if it's awesome and whatever else, and like it, there's something to it, there's some magic to it there, I'm not opposed to changing my mind. I'm just saying, like, it looks, it looks bonkers. Like, and, I and I just on, turn off for me. I will go on record and say, go ahead. The, there was a prototype that had a bench seat up front and it was a six seater and I've got a family of six and I was really stoked about it when I thought it was going to be six seat and I'm just crushed that they took away my middle seat up front. That's, yeah, it's only five. So that's that's a heartbreak. I will go on the record to your point, Eric. I will go on the record and say unless it has a massive makeover, I will never in my life own that truck. <laughs> well, so we get do, I do all kinds of things in life that are not like, I hate the, the taste of coffee, I, I, but I, I've grown to appreciate it because of the fact that it's caffeinated and it's a warm beverage and it's whatever. And so I drink coffee, even though I don't think it tastes good. And I am not saying I will never drive a cyber truck simply because it doesn't look good. There may be other elements of it that make it something that I, I would entertain in my life, but. The idea that anybody will sit back and suggest that this thing is not just horrendous is just <laughs> a bald-faced lie. So we can we can move back. Well, hey, let, let's move on. We're way over time. The the one other rapid fire question, Clint. Maybe we spend thirty seconds and then we'll we'll wrap this up and let you go. But multiple people have asked your thought on mandating QOE, whether it's on the buy side yeah. or sell side. What what are your thoughts as a broker of making your seller? pay for an independent quality of earnings review in order to go to market. That's a dumb idea. I I think it's like, <laughs> okay. okay. Tell me how you really feel, Clint. I think it's case by case. I mean, people keep trying to formulate this business, this industry into like templates and checklists and always do this, never do that things and i don't think it's that simple and that's what caught me off guard about this industry i came in green with a little bit of a tech background from the previous company i did before brokerage and i thought i could just build the most high-tech business brokerage that would standardize everything and use technology super well to automate the crap out of this and make buying and selling super simple for everyone and change everyone's life forever. And then I discovered it's not that freaking easy Yeah, and that like every deal is different. And this is a people first game more than anything. And there are some businesses where I'm like, this absolutely needs to have a QOV before I would trust anything out of this. And there are some that are so simple and you can see the P and L, the tax return, the POS system, everything matches, everything's super intuitive to understand. I can, I don't even need any due diligence assistance. I can just look at this in an afternoon and know exactly what I'm buying. And I know exactly what I'm going to do with it when I buy it. And why do I need to spend tens of thousands of dollars to get someone else's like stamp on it when it's that simple and straightforward. And so there's, there's a whole spectrum. And then we have like another end of the spectrum where you've got these like 
people that build complicated webs of entities. So I've sold some businesses that it's like you're buying a business, but they actually ran it as five different legal entities that were all related doing transactions with each other for various legal and tax reasons. And then if you look at the accrual basis, you got a million dollar difference versus the cash basis on the numbers. And it's all flowing between these companies and stuff. And I'm like, holy crap, I don't, even as a broker, I'm like, I'm pretty smart, but like, I can't really stand behind what I'm going to say EBITDA is on this until I get like someone that's got a forensic background to like really yeah. like, and so I've, I've made a seller pay for a QOV from a third party before in a, in a complicated situation like that. And to show us what do you think here is really going on? If you smush these five entities together and show it, like show us the real story from a thir- arm's length third party, you know, like sometimes that's necessary, but, I don't think there's a one size fits all. And that's why I think anything where you say mandatory, I'm going to throw the BS flag at that. Like, no, it's case by case. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Final question, Clint, best pizza topping combination. Go. (laughs) I knew you're going to ask that. I had one. You say something weird. He just, he just said he liked the cyber trucks. This guy's about to say like steak and potatoes or something great off the wall. Let's hear it. Glenn. Dude, I had one in Telluride last week. At Brown Dog Pizza, shout out to Brown Dog. Uh, please sponsor the podcast. Let's look it up. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm looking it up right now. Super good. Um, it was a Detroit style chicken pesto. It was like, let's go tomato sauce and pesto sauce on a deep dish kind of Detroit style, and it had chicken and man, that one was okay. super good. But Brown Dog nailed it. I'm kind of like. Brown dog, if you're if you're hearing this, get on Twitter, man. Come on. Yeah. So a couple things I want to just mention, just casually. One, I'm from Detroit, so Detroit style pizza. Two, I'm licensed in Colorado, where where Telluride (laughs) happens to be. Three, I love pizza, and four, I've got a podcast and a social media following. Shout out to Brown Dog Pizza. I think (laughs) we can wrap on that. Yeah, that was good. Thanks for joining us. I think you. I'm open-minded about I think you plugged your stuff at the beginning fair enough fair enough you plugged your stuff at the beginning one more time tell us where listeners can find you on twitter and interact and engage with you and we'll, we'll wrap it up there my my social media is the easiest way to get me and it's my name spelled out clint c l i n t fiore f i o r e so most of the platforms i'm at clint fiore and then on on the business side if you want to get in touch with my team they're actually easier to get to than I am most of the time. If you've got a deal you need help on, just go to bisonbusiness.com and call our main office line or, or reach out to us through any of the forms on our website and, and you'll get a, a good response from our team. Love it. All right. That's a wrap. Clint, it's always a pleasure. You will have the distinct honor of being our longest episode yet. Really appreciate the time. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Clint. Thanks, fellas. See you guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.